Good morning. Uh, we'll have communion towards the end of the service. If we could, could we open up to Matthew chapter 16, everybody? Matthew chapter 16. Technically, verse 27. I'll be in the area. <laughs> Father, as we open your word, we ask that our hearts would be open to you, that you cleanse us of all unrighteousness and sin. Lord, uh, we're very much acquainted with all of that. We're so thankful that you are merciful to us and you are gracious and kind. And so Lord be tender and kind and merciful with us as you've always been Lord and open our hearts as only you can give us ears to hear what your spirit is saying to the church in your name. Amen. Well, just a reminder where we left off uh, Matthew 16, Jesus asked the disciples who, who do people say that I am? And everybody has an opinion about who Jesus is, right? Yeah. You're one of the prophets from the old Testament. You're a great prophet. You're John the Baptist raised from the dead. That's what they're all saying. You're Elijah. And then Jesus flips it on and says, well, who do you say that I am? And Peter has this massive declaration. You are the Christ. In other words, the one that the prophets were declaring would come. You are the Christ, the son of the living God. That's who you are. And Jesus turns to Peter and says, Peter, man, you are blessed because the father in heaven has revealed that to you. You didn't get that by any flesh and blood type of learning there. You, God actually gave you that revelation of who I am. And immediately upon that, Jesus turns and starts to tell his disciples. He says, now, listen, this is what's going to happen. I'm going to go to Jerusalem. I'm going to suffer the hands of the religious leaders. I'm going to die. I'm going to rise again on the third day. And he wanted them to know that was the plan for the Messiah, for the son of God, which was not Peter's plan. Peter then quickly takes Jesus aside and begins to rebuke him and says, no, Lord, that, that, that can't be, that's not happening. And Jesus wants to square this away right away with Peter. He looks at him and says, get behind me, Satan. Satan's influencing Peter at this time. Can you imagine Peter one moment hearing from God, having revelation from God and the next moment being influenced by the enemy? Peter's on a roller coaster. We can all relate to that. And so he hears Jesus rebuke him and say, Peter, you're not mindful of the things of God, but you're mindful of earthly things. Your mind's on bread again. Your, your mind is not on heavenly things. You got back down to earth again. And then he wants to clear it up for anyone who would call themselves a follower of Jesus Christ. Anyone. This is us included, right? We say we're Christ community fellowship. Well, this is what he says is Christ's community fellowship in the broad sense. Anyone who wants to follow me, West, what? Deny himself, pick up his cross and follow me daily, right? You got you to deny, die and follow. That's what a believer is and does. And then Jesus quickly, so, so basically the cross is inevitable. We can't have a crossless Christianity, that's not Christianity whatsoever. So Jesus then said, what would it profit a man if he gains the whole world, but loses his soul? 
So to believe upon Jesus is to surrender your very soul to God. Blessed are the poor in spirit for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. I've got nothing Lord. And I give you my whole life. I give you my everything I am. I surrender it to you. I believe that you died for the wretch that I am. And you rose again. Amen. Amen. And he gives what happens is the Lord gives you eternal life. It's this mystery and this great act of grace that as we put our faith in the Lord, he, he changes us. He transforms us from the inside out. We become new creatures, new creatures, new creations, new beings, new life. His life is funneled into this dead person that could not respond to God, that would not respond to God. And now we breathe and kick and cry like a newborn baby. And we're responsive to our father. Amen. And he gives us this life, this unending life, his life. You will never perish. That's his promise. But if you hold on to your life, if you reject Christ and his grace, you have everything in this life that it has to offer. You have all the relationships, you have all the money, you have all the status. If you're king of the world, whatever you want to say, what's it going to profit you? If you lose your own soul, Jesus says the greatest thing that we would seek to accomplish in our fleshly, in this life, let's say, if you lose your soul, what happens? What does that mean? Well, and when, and, and how do we know we're going to lose our soul? Well, Jesus kind of clears it up here. Verse 27 says for the son of man is going to come with his angels in the glory of his father. Jesus Christ is coming back. And when he comes, he's going to come in the glory of his father. What does that look like? Well, we're going to find out a little bit. And then when he comes back, what's going to happen? He will do what? Repay each one, each person, according to what he has done. That's scary. Thankfully, there's a context to this. Those he's going to build his church upon Peter's declaration that he's the Christ, that he's the son of the living God. Amen. That's the declaration that all who believe in Christ, they believe that he is the Messiah, according to the old Testament, that he would die and rise again. Those who believe that Jesus died and rose again for their sins, the gates of hell shall not prevail against the church. Hell is not in your future. This is all the hell you're going to experience. But for those who reject Christ and his love, the love of God offered in his son, the mercy of God, the forgiveness of sins freely given to all who believe, who all repent. For the son of man is going to come with his angels and the glory of his father. And he will repay each person according to what he has done. There's a point of a day when Jesus is going to return his second coming. And on that or following that, there'll be a judgment and Jesus is obviously speaking in, in condensed form. He's giving a, just a big cross section of what's coming right from his death all the way to the judgment. And so in chapter 16, Jesus is letting the disciples in on the big picture. Here's the cool thing about being a believer. Jesus lets us in on the big picture. You don't need to wonder what's going to happen in the world. He tells you, he gives you the, the last page. You ever flipped to revelation? 
just like start in chapter 20 and go to 21. You know, they're just, you're like, yay, we, we win. <laughs> it's going to wipe away every tear and we're going to be in this kingdom. And, and we don't even know what that's going to look like. That's way awesome. Amen. So he's given them a, a picture, but what did he just talk to them about? And just like us, we get pulled back down to where we are. And what does he say? What's on the horizon for him? I'm going to die. And they're like, Oh man, no, 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 no. That's not the Christ I read about in my Bible. He's not taking me to suffering and dying. And Jesus said, no, we're, we're going to the cross. And anybody who's following me is going to go cross. These guys would die. Most of them. And so he's letting them in on the big picture in chapter 16. He's going to suffer and die. He's going to rise after three days. We'll celebrate that next week. Amen. Not that we don't celebrate today and here in verse 27, that he will come again in the glory of his father. Keep that in mind. And when Jesus returns, he's going to repay each one according to what they have done. And so Jesus gives a context to the suffering that's going to happen. Isn't that nice? He's not just saying, I'm going to die. Everybody, I'm going to die. I'm going to die. I'm going to die. But in typical God-like fashion, he always gives hope. <laughs> I love how the Lord does that. He gives us hope. Even when he talks about hard things that ha we have to go through or experience in this life, he always gives us hope. It's who he is. He's our hope, the sure hope. And so Jesus gives a context to the suffering that's going to come upon. He will die, but he will rise again and he'll come back and make everything right. That's what he's going to say. That's what he's saying there. And so Jesus gives them that big sweeping plan. And we need to know that too. God's given us the plan. There might be a cross in your future. There definitely is. If you're a believer daily, but there might be a literal cross in your future. Who knows? But there's also a resurrection. And there's also the glory. Amen. Cross before the crown. And so Jesus gives them the big picture. And then he says to him in verse 28, truly, I say to you, there are some standing here who will not taste death until they see the son of man coming in his kingdom or in his glory of the kingdom. Now, if you're there and you're listening to Jesus say, I'm going to go die. I'm going to go suffer. I'm going to rise again, but I'm going to come back. And some of you will be around to see me in my glory. How would you take that? Well, some people think that this is speaking about an event that's going to happen soon. I'll get into that in just a second. But what I want to say in the, in just to give us a clarity about prophecy, because Jesus has given a prophecy here is there's usually two aspects to prophecy. When the prophet speaks, there's a near fulfillment and there's a far fulfillment. There's something that would happen right away. So that would validate the future fulfillment of it. This is happens all the time. For example, you'll see in Matthew 24, when we get there in a week or two, and I'm just kidding. Laugh, laugh. It'll get there. But Jesus talks about the destruction of the temple and he starts to go into this epic things and they go, when will the sign of this happen? When will it happen? When's all this going to happen? So Jesus speaks about the destruction of the temple. When would that be? And there was a, a near fulfillment of this in 70 AD Titus came in with the Romans and he leveled the city and the temple. Not one stone was left upon another, right? There was a the literal fulfillment of that right then. But then as you read Matthew 24, I'm not going to go into it now. 
it just gets bigger than Jerusalem. It, it just, it's, it's bigger than Jerusalem. It's, it's, it's global. It's worldwide. Something bigger is happening. And that's exactly what happened. There's a near fulfillment 70 AD, but then there's a far fulfillment like the end. And we'll, we'll hash that out. There's a greater scale. And this, this serves to two things that they would know right away. That there's a validation that what he's saying is true, but also that the bigger picture would be fulfilled. So there's a near and far fulfillment. Same here in verse 27 and 28, that the far fulfillment would be, I'm coming back. The second coming of Jesus. Amen. But so the disciples would know that all this would come about. As he said, his death, his resurrection and his return. I want you to know right now that what I'm saying will come about because you're not going to be around to see the second coming from this perspective, Jesus says to them in verse 28, truly I say to you, there are some standing here. So he's talking among his disciples who will not taste death until they see the son of man coming in his kingdom. In other words, some of you will see my glory before you die. Right? I am going to give you a preview of my glory before you taste death. That's what he's talking about. Now, some people believe, as I mentioned a little bit ago, Jesus is saying, Jesus would be saying here that he would return within their lifetime. That would be a preterist view of scripture. And part of that is the heresy that Jesus already has returned. And Paul has to deal with that in, in first Corinthians 13 and all these other places. So, and, and what they would do is they would look at scriptures like uh, Matthew 24, like I said, that talks about the end times in these pictures. And instead of seeing the, the future fulfillment of that, they would pile it all into 70 AD. So that's when Jesus came back and there was a resurrection there and they have to justify all this type of stuff. And they connect that with this verse. And then, and that's why they say, Hey, some of the disciples would still be alive at 70 AD and they would see my return. And so they're trying to squeeze all that into a current context. Actually, that was just the near fulfillment of Matthew 24. But now that is not what Jesus means by this. When he says, some of you won't taste death. He's not talking about that. We know that because flip to the next chapter. We are at the end of chapter 16, 17 verse one. Matthew didn't have chapter breakups. Those were added later, just to let you know, he's still continuing with this thought. And what does he say there in 17 verse one? And after six days, Jesus took Peter and James and John and his brother and led him up to a high mountain by themselves. And he was transfigured before them and his face shone like the sun and his clothes became white as light. What are they seeing Jesus in his glory? That's what Matthew's talking about. He's connecting the two. This is that. So just read, read your Bibles. And it usually explains itself there. But here it is after six days. So after Peter made that declaration, after Peter got corrected and all those things, Jesus then tells them, Hey, there's going to be some of you who are going to see me in my glory, the glory of my kingdom. And after six days, Jesus took with him three of the guys, Peter, James, and John seemed to be special guys to Jesus. Not that everybody was special, but these guys, he drew close to himself. So Jesus takes them on a high mountain. Tradition says it was Mount Tabor. For those of you uh, map people out there. No, 
Eric says, no. Tradition says it was Mount Tabor, so Mount 13. Some think Mount Hermon, some think different mountains around there. There was a mountain around there about 11 miles west of sea, the Sea of Galilee. That's where they say it was. I don't know. No one knows. It just was a high mountain. So verse 2 says, and he was transfigured before them. That word transfigure is where we get the word metamorphosis. It means he was totally changed before them. Imagine you're on, you're with Jesus on this mountain and he totally changes before you. He transforms. He changes into something totally different. That's what happens. He metamorphosizes before them. How so? His face shone like the sun. What's the brightest thing we have around? The sun. And so you can see that we have a three-dimensional people trying to describe a beyond-dimensional God in our language. His face was like the sun. What is he saying? His face was what? Incredibly bright. And his clothes became as white as light. They're trying to use descriptors in our language to describe. He was just totally brilliant. What is being described here is Jesus and his unveiled glory. This is who he is. This is Jesus in his glory, in his true state, radiating light from his being. It's not that the clothes he was wearing were white. It's just, he is light and he radiates from his being. God is light and in him is no darkness at all. The idea is there's such a moral purity that it just, it's manifested in our spectrum as light. Whatever that is. I don't even get it. That's the idea. So bright, so white, just. This is how he appears to Paul and other people as well. This is his his true state. The other accounts of this transfiguration in Mark chapter nine, Luke chapter nine, pretty cool. It's easy to remember those places. Mark chapter nine says that his clothes became radiant, intensely white as no one on earth could bleach them. So a laundry perspective there, like no one can get that this white. It's just, everybody's like, really? Right. So intensely white, just radiant light. Luke nine says, and he was, as he was praying, the appearance of his face was altered and his clothing became dazzling white. So Mark is probably Peter's account and, and, and Luke's grabbing another account there. He's he, Luke is grabbing a, the eyewitness testimony of all these apostles. And they're just all the ones who were there just saying, yeah, it's bright. It's like, I'm t- describing to you. It's like, how do we get that? Okay, I get it, Matt. It's bright. No, I don't think you do. In John chapter 1, 14, have you ever seen anything that just changes your thought on reality? 
They, lo- they saw Jesus in his unveiled glory and it just changed them. They were blown away and it comes through in their writing in John chapter one fourteen. Although John doesn't talk about the transfiguration. He was there with his brother, James and Peter, right? And he says there in the word became flesh and dwelt among us. And we have seen his glory, glory as of the only son from the father, full of grace and truth. This is, they saw him and he's just not only radiating light, his very being grace and truth. And in his actions, it flowed. John saw him transfigured again in revelation chapter one, where he writes in verses 10 through 18 flip there to the end of the Bible. Remember revelation one, 10 through 18, it'll be up here, but it's good to write Read it. He says, I was in the spirit in the Lord's day. And I heard behind me a loud voice like a trumpet saying, write that you write what you see in a book and send it to the seven churches to Ephesus and to Smyrna and to Pergamum and Thyatira and to Sardis and to Philadelphia and Laodicea. And then I turned to see the voice that was speaking to me. And on turning, I saw seven golden lampstands. And in the midst of the lamp stands one like a son of man clothed with a long robe and with a golden sash around his chest and the hairs of his head were white, like wool, like snow. And his eyes were like a flame of fire and his feet were like burnished bronze refined in a furnace. And his voice was like the roar of many waters. And in his right hand, he held seven stars from his mouth came a sharp two edged sword and his face was like the sun shining in full strength. And when I saw him, I fell at his feet as though dead. Who is this? But he laid his right hand on me and said, fear not. I am the first and the last and the living one. And I died and behold, I'm alive forevermore. And I have the keys of death and hell. Jesus Christ in his glory. Revelation chapter one. How many of us have a picture of Jesus like this when we think of him? That's your Jesus. It's my Jesus. That is the God we come to worship the son of the living God. Radiating in all his glory at the right hand of the father. Jesus said at the end of Matthew 16, he'll say again in Matthew 24 and in chapter 25, that when he returns, he will return in the glory of his father. And it talks about lightning as from the East to the West and everybody sees it. What are they going to see? Oh, look, there's going to be a flashing of something. It's going to be him. His total brilliant radiance breaking into our reality. This is the taste that of that glory that Peter and James and John are getting here on this mountain in verse three tells us, and behold, there also appeared to them Moses and Elijah talking with him. 
What a trip, especially if you're Peter and a Jew. The big three, if you're Peter at this point, Luke's account tells us in chapter nine, verse 30 through 31. And behold, two men were talking with him, Moses and Elijah, who appeared in glory and the glory of the Lord and spoke of his departure, which he was about to accomplish at Jerusalem. Luke tells us what they're talking about. Thank you. They're talking about a soon departure. They're talking about what's about to happen. The cross. And this is fitting because Moses being obviously representative of the law. He wrote it, the law of Moses and the prophets. Elijah representative the law and the prophets, the old Testament. Who do they testify of? Jesus Christ. What do they prophesy of? What's going to happen here? And so they're hanging out talking about this. Can you imagine that being Moses and Elijah sitting there talking to Jesus going, wow, (laughs) like what you did in and through us to speak about what you're actually going to do right now. And they're just blown away. We know it's the spirit of Christ in the prophets who prophesied in the future. It's wild stuff. And remember on the day that Jesus was raised from the dead and he walks with his two disciples on the road to Emmaus, they didn't know, they didn't know it was him. He was kind of concealed before them. And what happens? They're talking about all this stuff. And they're like, where have you been stranger? Who's walking with us? Like, why are you asking these questions? Don't you know what's going on? Everybody knows what's going on. And in Luke 24 verse 25, he said to them as he was asking them questions about this, he says, Oh, foolish ones and slow of heart to believe all that the prophets have spoken. Was it not necessary that the Christ should suffer these things and enter into glory. Didn't you read your old Testament properly? Oh, don't be surprised about what's happening. This is exactly what the prophet said would happen. And beginning with Moses and all the prophets, verse 27, he interpreted them in all the scriptures, the things concerning himself. It's all talking about him. And so here before Peter, John and James, Jesus is speaking to Moses and Elijah about what's about to happen. Pretty cool stuff. And Peter is besides himself. There's no one bigger Moses. Oh my goodness. How wonderful is that? Right. And Elijah. Oh gosh. The guy who went up in a chariot of fire. Here they are. And so what does Peter do? Verse four, and Peter said to Jesus, Lord, man, it's good that we are here. We don't know from this account, but from another account, we, Peter's waking up because Jesus is praying and the boys are doing what they're sleeping as always, as they will in the garden of Gethsemane. He's waking up from a stupor and he says, man, this is great. If you wish, I will make three tents here. One for you and one for Moses and one for Elijah. That's what we want. I want, I want to stay in this moment. This is awesome. Let me build some tents for you guys and we can hang out. Just stay put. 
Here's the context. Jesus takes Peter, James, and John on this mountain and Jesus is praying. And Luke says that they were sleeping in Matthew 26. We know that the night that they were arrested, it says that then Jesus went with them and starting in verse 36 to a place called Gethsemane. And he said to the disciples, sit here while I go over there and pray. So all the disciples are with him. Hey, sit here. I'm going to go over there and pray. And then he takes Peter and James Johns and taking with him the two sons of Zebedee and Peter, right? He began to be sorrowful and troubled. And then he said to them, my soul is very sorrowful. Even to death remain here and watch with me. And so Peter, James and John are the guys that he again drags with him in his moment of need. He reveals his glory to them. And then he takes them in the moment that that, that everything that Moses and Elijah and Jesus are talking about, it's going to culminate and they're still, they sleep again in the garden. And verse 29 says there, it says, and going a little further, he fell on his face and prayed saying, my father, if this be possible, let this cup pass for me. Nevertheless, not I will, but what your will is. And he came to the disciples and found them sleeping. And he said to them because they were overwhelmed with sorrow, apparently. And he said to Peter, so you, could you not watch with me for one hour? Watch and pray that you may not enter into temptation. The spirit is indeed willing, but the flesh is weak. So disciples are just sleeping when really important things are spiritually are happening. Jesus is praying, but look how patient the Lord is. Look, he still brings them along. He still shows them the glory. He still, thank you, Lord. And Peter comes and he wakes up to see Jesus spoken to Moses and Elijah. And Luke nine thirty three tells us that Moses and Elijah were leaving they were actually leaving. And Peter says, wait, 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 don't go anywhere. I'm going to build three things for you guys. Hang out. He starts to react. And really this is just Peter's excitement. Wouldn't you? But look what happens. He makes the mistake of putting them on equal footing, equal footing. And this is our mistake. Quite often we look at Moses we look at Elijah and some people do that and they put the law and all these things on equal footing with Jesus. I mean, the Lord uttered the law into existence. Really Peter's ex- excited here. Verse five. And he was still speaking to them. He's still talking. He's rambling. And what happens? And behold, a bright cloud overshadowed them and a voice from the cloud said, this is my beloved son with whom I am well pleased. Listen to him. I love the opening verse in Hebrews. It says long ago, at many times and in many ways, God spoke to our fathers by the prophets. But in these last days, he has spoken to us by his son, whom he appointed heir of all things through whom he also created the world. He is the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of his nature. And he upholds the universe by the words of his power. Mystery of the universe solved Hebrews chapter one, verses one through three. It's Jesus. And he holds everything together by the word of his power. He created the world was created through him. And he, what does it say? Is the glory. 
Well, let me read what it says. He is the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of his nature. I and the father are one. He would say, if you've seen me, you've seen the father, Jesus said. And so Peter, along the prophets, prophets, they testified to the son. We need to get that straight. Listen to him. Verse six, Matthew 17 back there. It says, when the disciples heard this, they fell on their faces and were terrified. Correct. They were surrounded by the Shekinah glory of the father, his very presence. And he spoke and no doubt they just were shook. Hearing the voice of the father there. And they were terrified. The father is awesome. Our father is awesome. Fear the Lord. Yes. He's awesome. And we have every reason to fear him apart from one reason. (laughs) Verse seven, but Jesus came and touched them saying, rise and have no fear. He did it again, didn't he? And when they lifted up their eyes, they saw no one, but Jesus only. For God so loved the world. You know, God is the father. He's, he's terrifying. Jesus is terrifying. They are terrifying because they're so holy and awesome. But listen, they're also love for God. So loved the world that he gave his only son. We don't just get to bust into the throne room of God. No one can even be in his presence. It's not wild. No flesh shall glory in my presence. But here he is in his love and his mercy and his grace. Jesus said, I am the way, the truth, the life. No one comes to the father except through me. No one comes to the father, but guess what? Come to the father. (laughs) Amen. (laughs) Come to the father through the son who has appeased the wrath of God through his death. He took our sins. Amen. I love that. Jesus came and touched them saying, rise and have no fear. Rise and have no fear. You hear that believer? He does it over and over again to us. We have peace with God through Jesus Christ. Rise and have no fear. Come boldly before the throne of grace in your time of need. Run to your father. Amen. And verse nine says, and as they were coming down the mountain, Jesus commanded them, tell no one the vision until the son of man is raised from the dead. And the disciples asked him, then why do the scribes say first Elijah must come? They're confused. Again, there's a plan. Jesus is indeed was indeed the Christ and the son of living God, just as Peter declared, but just as the law and prophets testified to, he must first suffer and die on the cross, right? That's the plan. He's got to suffer and die. You're the, but he's saying, Hey, wait, what about Elijah? Cause the, the chief priests say that before the Messiah comes, there's supposed to be Elijah. Elijah's supposed to come. They're just trying to get their chronology, right? What's going on here? We're missing a piece. Anybody had that? If any ladies studying revelation, trying to figure out what goes next. There, Peter's doing the same thing. Hey, I, the, the teachers of the day, the law, they're, they're, they're saying, hey, man, Elijah's supposed to come first. They're trying to figure that out. And Jesus assures them Elijah does come. Verse 11, he says, and Elijah does come and he will restore all things. Okay. 
What is being referred to here is the prophecy by Malachi in chapter four. Malachi is the last book of the old Testament, 400 years before the writing of Matthew, before Christ came on the scene. And in Malachi chapter four, at the close of the old Testament, I'll just read for you chapter four because it's short. It says, for behold, the day is coming, burning like an oven, when all the arrogant and all the evildoers will be stubble. The day that is coming shall set them ablaze, says the Lord of hosts, so that it will leave them neither root nor branch. And so judgment is coming, the day of the Lord. What Jesus is talking about, I'm coming back with my angels. I'm going to repay people what they deserve, right? It's coming. But for you who fear my name, the sun of righteousness shall rise with healing in its wings. The gates of hell shall not prevail against you. Amen. So you shall go out with leaping like calves from the stall and you shall tread down the wicked for they will be ashes under your soles of your feet on the day when I act as the Lord uh, says the Lord of hosts. Remember the law of my servant Moses, the statutes and rules that I commanded him at Horeb uh, for all of Israel. Behold, I will send you Elijah the prophet before the great and awesome day of the Lord. So everybody's looking radar, radar. What's going to happen before the Lord comes? There's got to be an Elijah. Where's Elijah? Everybody's looking for Elijah. So when people are saying, Hey, do you say that? Who do you say that I am? Jesus says, people are going, you're probably Elijah or you possibly are Elijah because he's supposed to come next, right? They're trying to connect that out. And it says, Elijah's going to come verse six. And he will turn the hearts of, fa- of fathers to their children and the hearts of children to their fathers. Lest I come and strike the land with a decree of utter destruction. So this is a prophecy and the Old Testament closes. That's what's coming. So Elijah is to come before the day of the Lord, before the second coming. This is what we're getting that. This is where we're getting that teaching. That's what the scribes and the Pharisees saw. And Jesus said, that's right. He's going to come and he will restore all things. He will turn the heart of my people back to me. But as with many prophecies, there's a near fulfillment, a far fulfillment. And that's what I think Jesus is talking about. Verse 27 is talking about the second coming. I believe Jesus is saying, yes, Elijah or one like him will come before I return. And I'll have to connect the dots here. And you have to take this with, you guys study this out. Okay. But verse 27, listen, yes, he will come definitive statement. Elijah's coming. So Jesus is saying, yes, that's going to happen. And I believe the verse 27 is talking about, he's going to come before I come back in my second coming. One, he or one like him. I'm going to connect the dots. Give me a second. And what I believe Jesus is talking about here is that before the second coming, there will be two witnesses that appear on earth. And you can read about them in Revelation 11. Ladies, have you gone to Revelation 11 yet? Two witnesses. What do you notice about the witnesses? What are they doing? Many people believe that the two witnesses are Moses and Elijah or someone like Moses and Elijah, which would probably be more accurate. Let me read to you Revelation 11, four through eight. So you can see what I mean and possibly what Jesus is saying. This is taking place during the tribulation periods of seven years before Christ returns his second coming, which I believe is at the end of that seven years. Um, I believe there's a rapture at the beginning. We can disagree on some of these things, but not that Jesus is returning. Verse four, Revelation 11. These are the two olive trees and the two lamp stands that stand before the Lord of the earth. And if anyone would harm them, fire pours from their mouth and consumes their foes. And if anyone would harm them, this is how he is doomed to be killed. 
So they need to be messing with these two prophets. They're going to die by fire. It's going to pour out of their mouth. So crazy stuff happening in revelation. You can read about it. Okay. Fun. You don't want to be there. They have the power to shut the sky that no rain may fall during the days of their prophesying. Who had the power to shut the sky? Who, what prophet was that? Elijah prayed and there was no rain for three and a half years. And that's how long they're prophesying by 1,290 days. You notice what other powers that God has bestowed upon them, signs and wonders. And they have the power over water to turn them into blood and to strike the earth with every kind of plague as often as they desire. Who does that remind you of? Moses. So you've got two. There's a connection there. It doesn't say this is them, but you see it. So I would jump to the conclusion and you can take me with a grain of salt here that these, one of those witnesses is going to be like Elijah coming before the day of the Lord, whether it's him or not, I don't know, but someone who's operating in that same kind of gifting. That's what I see here. And also Moses, and they'll be prophesying 1,260 days. And during that time, Israel is going to wake up. And so when it comes to the second coming of Jesus, Elijah will precede the Lord. I believe that's what verse 27 is talking about. That's my take. But verse 28 is a near fulfillment. And here we are that Elijah would come before Jesus's first coming as well. And Jesus speaks to this in verse 12. But I tell you that Elijah has already come and they did not recognize him, but did to him whatever they please. So also the son of man will certainly suffer at their hands. And then the disciples understood that he was speaking to them about what, who John the Baptist is John the Baptist, Elijah, the prophet. No, but he's coming in the power and the spirit and the authority of Elijah preparing people for the Lord. And so the near John the Baptist, the far, the second witness. That's what I think Jesus is talking about. And what happened is that Herod killed John and they're going to kill those prophets, those two prophets at the end of the day. But after three days, they're going to rise again and the whole world's going to see it. it's going to be interesting. And you're going, ah, oh, what is all this you're talking about? Gotta get in the women's Bible study, ladies. <laughs> but here we go. We went over that in depth about John the Baptist being Elijah and Matthew 11. Go back and check those notes. I'm not going to redo it right now, but I would encourage you to go listen to that. But here's the thing. I think if we just kind of wrap this up, Jesus has given the big picture. Listen, I'm dying. I'm going to rise again and I'm coming back and you are going to see me in my glory. You're going to see God face to face. You're going to see the son of God face to face. Think about that for a minute. I know we're living in the here and now and things are difficult as the disciples have difficulties on the horizon, but he wants them to know a certainty that day is coming. You brother and sister need to know that that day is coming. You will see him in his unveiled glory. It's going to be awesome. If indeed you're his. Please be his. 
Surrender your life to him right now. Respond to his love. He died to save you from your sins, that the wrath of God would be poured out on him and not you. Turn. It's nothing you can do. You just say, I believe. And you turn in your heart, respond to the spirit of God, believe that he died and rose again. And he'll make you brand new. That's his promise. He'll do that work in you. Here's the thing. We're going to see him face to face. A couple of, a few verses that come to mind as we close, we're going to enter into communion here. Paul in second Corinthians chapter three speaks about the blindness of those who don't know the Lord. They can't see him, even though they have read about him. He's talking about the Jews in the old Testament, but um, the Jews in that time. But Paul says there in verse 16, he says, but when one turns to the Lord, the veils are removed can't see his glory. You can't see him. You don't know who he is, but when you turn to the Lord and respond in faith, when you believe the veil is removed, that's wild. And now the Lord is spirit and where the spirit of the Lord, there's freedom. And we all with unveiled faces, behold, the glory of the Lord are being transformed into the same image from one degree of glory to another. For this comes from the Lord of the spirit. You are being transformed into that image. There's a lot there, but the, the glory, somehow the glory that we see here in the transfigured Jesus, we're going to share in that glory. You know, when Adam fell and he realized he was naked, was he naked all along? Yeah, he was. What did you think he lost? I think he lost the radiance of being in Christ's presence. He lost his glory, so to speak. And I don't understand all that, but one day we will radiate from the inside out in his presence because we've been born again in here. He's going to give us an outside that fits the inside. Can't wait for that. That's going to be awesome. The other verse I was pondering in all this is John who was there wrote in first John chapter three. He says this, see what kind of love the father has given to us that we should be called children of God. And so we are see what kind of love God has. He's made you as kids through faith in Christ. You're his kid. How do you guys love your kids in general? Right? He loves to see what kind of love that he has made us his kids. We've been born into his kingdom by his spirit. I love that. If we've been believed upon Christ, we have been transformed. We've gone through a metaphor metamorphosis. We've been totally changed on the inside. He has made us in his image on the inside. And he goes on in verse one of first John three says, the reason why the world does not know us is they didn't know him. Beloved, we are God's children now and what we will be has not yet appeared, but we will know that when he appears, we shall be like him because we shall see him as he is. And everyone who thus hopes in him purifies himself as he is pure. In other words, you're going to be able to see him because you're going to be like him. That's the point of that verse. You will be transformed in the moment and twinkling of an eye. You'll be changed. Man, you're going to be glorified one day. You're going to, 
I believe come back with Christ in his glory. It's awesome. That's our destiny church. And as we enter into communion, just last few minutes here, Jesus has kind of, he takes his disciples and and he's showing them the big picture of what's happening and they're living in the reality. This is what faith is. And we're to live like that. We're to live on with our eyes towards the future. This is why he says those who have that hope purify themselves just as he is pure. In other words, what we see now there's a cross, but we gladly endure the cross because we know what's ahead. The suffering and all the shame and the suffering, this life of living miserably, as Paul would say in first Corinthians 13, all the things you have to endure being a Christian, denying himself, picking up your cross, following him, all that kind of stuff is just the joy of what's ahead. Knowing that at the end of all this is well done, good and faithful servant is the loving arms of your father at the other end of this. Who sent his son to die for your sins, but not only to die for your sins, but that you would rise again and not only rise again then, but now <laughs> that we would have new life now. And that would culminate on that day when we see him face to face, like a bride waiting for her groom ready. Amen. And so as we come to the tables, this is a symbol as we look at his body, it is broken and his, his blood that was shed for us. This is the entry point. And the Lord wants us to remember that he's the one who brought us into the kingdom. But just as there's this blood and flesh and this suffering, there's also a glory that's coming. Amen. And that is yours because Christ paid it and will bring you through till the very end. We're on a ride right now. It's a ride of faith. And there's a lot of ups and downs like Peter focus on the Lord. Remember him and remember that he has, he's paid it all. And he's bringing you to his very presence soon. If not by death, by his return, come Lord Jesus, come. Amen. So father, we just pray Lord that as you were, transfigured before them, Lord, and they beheld your glory, Lord, that we would know with certainty that we will see the same and we will be transformed and be like you. Lord, we can't wait. But in the meantime, Lord, may we purify ourselves as you are pure. May we confess our sin before you, Lord. May we live in light of the hope of eternity. And we pray, Lord, that we would be a worthy witness of all that you've done. And we pray this in the name of Jesus. Amen.